So we're going we're gonna to walk through this Luke 9, uh, 51 through 62. And let us pray. O oh God, the strength of all who put their trust in you, mercifully accept our prayers. And because in our weakness we can do nothing good without you, give us the help of your grace, that in keeping your commandments we may please you both in will and deed. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, imagine, if you will, that you're at a party and you're enjoying fellowship and conversation. Conversation is light um, with guests at this party. And you're talking with a friend who, uh, in this conversation, expresses to you troubles that they are going through. They pour out their heart to you, and the mood of this party turns quickly from once being light to something very heavy. And then the remainder of the evening is, is uh, tainted with this heaviness. Well, in Luke's gospel, this is the turning point or the turning chapter of Luke's gospel. And so for the remaining ten verses, there's this heaviness that was not necessarily there prior to. This heaviness comes because Jesus has set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. He... Uh, he tells his disciples of how he's got to go, he's going to be betrayed, he's going to suffer, he's going to be put to death, and then he will be raised to life. Now he's told them that, and in verse 51 it says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So these next ten chapters are dealing with his uh, steadfast focus of heading toward Jerusalem. Jerusalem is looming in the distance in every story you read from this point forward with all that comes with it. And now many of the twelve and many of the other followers fall away, but Jesus has this divine determination that will carry him all the way through this journey. And so it's at this point he's inviting us to walk along the road with him, but this road is not rosy. Today's lesson gives us insight to the trials and the demands of following Jesus on this road. First off, we'll see that Jesus demands that his followers show mercy. Look with me, let's begin in 52. It says, And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? 55, but he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. So the, the crowds had been growing in size. And be, because these crowds had grown in size, he sent messengers ahead uh, some of his disciples to get into this village of the Samaritans and prepare for him to come. But the Samaritans rejected him. But James and John, don't you just got to love this response. Well, should we just call fire down and like consume them? Let's, let's just burn them up. 
And, and I, I, it strikes me rather, I don't know, kind of funny and weird, out of place, because in the New Testament, this is out of place. This is like something from the Old Testament. Um, it, and we could imagine calling down fire and consuming a bunch of things or people or stuff in the Old Testament. But in the New, it seems very weird. But they would have been familiar with these kinds of things. And there was also this hatred between both sides. The Jews and the Samaritans hated each other, and it went back for a long, long time. There was so much hatred and so little time. The Samaritans had intermarried with the Assyrian conquerors, and the Jews considered them half-breeds and apostates. The Samaritans, in turn, called the Jews um, apostates, and there was no love lost between these two groups. So James and John knew of Elijah calling down fire from heaven on King Ahaziah's men because he was rejecting God. So this may have been their understanding that, okay, they seem to be rejecting you, so we'll call fire down because that seems like a reasonable thing to do. Well, the Samaritans perhaps were returning the rejection of the Jews. They may not have been actually rejecting God himself. It may have just been a rejection of the Jews to return that rejection. The disciples had heard Jesus say in Luke 6, 27 through 28, it's recorded, it says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. But these disciples, they had to learn to put this into action, just like we must do ourselves. Those who follow Jesus on the road must be merciful as Jesus was merciful. Is there a chance that you could take pleasure in the judgment of a group of people who reject Christian beliefs at this present time. And of course, this is our first time of gathering since this, uh, this huge uh, decision was released truly, by, uh, for real, by the court of uh, the turning uh, over of Roe versus Wade. And so determined that it's not a constitutional right to get an abortion. Now, we, we, the church, we, uh, I, it seems reasonable that one would say the Christian church should have always been against abortion. I don't know, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure that we can say it that broadly. The Anglican church has always had a strong stance of that. The Catholic church has had a very public stance of that. You might have been a Catholic and might not have believed it, but that's what the Catholic church believed and everybody knows that. Well, we, the Anglicans, have as well. We understand that God is the giver of life. We think he's the only one who he gives and he takes away. This is not for us to do. So this is, this is huge. And um, between me and Becky, our, our Facebook feeds and social media feeds look somewhat different. And hers has lots of outrage, uh, more so than mine. And, uh, and, I, and, I, and you can easily find some things to read that people certainly are in disagreement. And there is this confusion where we really
really do believe we're God, and he is not. You know, this is the, the fall of man started because people wanted to be like God. We haven't gotten over that yet. And so when we decide that we are the givers of life and he is not, then we're putting our place, ourselves in the place of God. Now, I can say this very easily, and that may still be hard for you to wrap our minds around, because this whole sanctification process after, after the Lord of glory has reached down in us and turned us from being an enemy of His to being a friend of His, called a child of His, then there's this cleaning up where the Holy Spirit is cleaning us up, forming us into His likeness. Well, in that, there's still this concept that what we're really battling is our, our desire to be God. And in that fallenness, when we want to be the God of our own universe and we want to make ourselves the center of the universe, that's where Paul's list that Becky read talks about so many things that these are the things that you want to do. And he didn't say you're going to stop wanting these. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to the church. So there are things that we might want to do. So I, and I, I think this is kind of an appropriate lesson for our, the timing we're in where we need to be able to show mercy to those who disagree with us, who disagree with the church's stance. And then, and then yes, the, then the argument is that we, we, the church, need to show mercy to um, unplanned pregnancy for the mothers and so on. And, I, and to that I would have to say yes. We still need to do that, as we have been doing. So uh, there's, there's my bit on that. And this that has come could... You know, it, may be, it may be just more pleasant to stay away from all your social media feeds and what have you. I don't know how you're going to get news uh, in this world without those kinds of things. But in order to keep peace, uh, you may need to just kind of take a break from that. And I, and I would suggest it. But in, if, if, you, if you're dealing with all kinds of different kinds of turmoil from what's going on in our real world uh, and want to talk with me about that, I would love to talk more. This concept of showing mercy, though, is... We don't need to gloat, and we shouldn't. We should be still extending mercy to those who don't agree with us, to those who don't agree with Christian principles, Christian values, Christian beliefs. Perhaps we have friends or relatives or neighbors who have rejected Christian beliefs at this, up to this point. Well, we're, we're not going to be like James and John to call down fire and you know, uh, wipe these people out, we're going to extend mercy, recognizing that they still will have opportunity till death comes to them, they have the opportunity to repent and believe. So we extend mercy. So I think we have grand opportunity to continue to extend mercy and show mercy and be very conscientious of that. So Jesus demands that his followers extend mercy he also demands an unwavering commitment. Verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, Jesus, see, combines this call to mercy with a call to commitment. They go together. And, and I, I want to... I want to say that I am, I am a big proponent of helping you see how it is that God saved you and you didn't save yourself. 
I do rather well at explaining the gospel in a very clear way about how it is that it's by His goodness and not yours how God chose you and made you alive in Him by His efforts, not yours. How the only thing that you brought to the table for your salvation was the sin from which you needed saved from. From that, you can all say, Amen. Those things are good and right. But it doesn't stop there, and it's not wholly, only dependent upon Him. So we would say justification is a one-way love, that He's the one who loves you, brings life to you. From that sanctification, that walking with Him, requires all that we have. Now, He walks along with us, and we are not alone, but here He's calling for a commitment. And I think this is important in, a, in, our, in our world where commitments are taken way too lightly. Serious commitment. Real commitments are taken way too lightly. Uh, this is good for us to hear. And, and our world has not always been this way. It wasn't very many years ago. I sold a, our family farm to, uh, to somebody, and we agreed on the deal with a handshake. So when we got to the attorney's office and the guy said, well, so where is your contract? And he said, well, we don't have a contract. We, uh, we shook hands. And the, and the attorney just didn't know what to do with that. In our, in our world today, there are not many people you're going to shake hands with on selling your Facebook marketplace item for three bucks, let alone uh, the family farm. Commitments are taken way too lightly. But Jesus is calling for a commitment here. This is what this is about. He combines this call to mercy with a call to commitment. He, was not, he is not this mercy only. So you go your own way. I have shown mercy to you. Go do whatever you want. This is not what he says. It was, it was mercy that fueled his commitment to see this journey through to the end. Knowing what's ahead at this point in this book of Luke... For these next 10 chapters, he is going to go through very, very difficult times, and he knows he is. But he does it anyway, because mercy is fueling the commitment. Jesus does not just model some sort of an example that we're to follow. We are to enter his life, his hardships, his sufferings, all that is that he has to offer us. At times... Jesus did have a place to rest in that he was able to be at Peter's house or he was able to be at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' home. But he didn't have a place of his own. He didn't have that safe place to return when things were difficult. When, when, when I, and I, and I, and I recognize to the rest of the crowd, I'm just an old man, but as I get to be more of, the, and I, I'm living into it. Now, I've been an old man for about 40 years, but I'm living more and more into it. And the, when I go away from home, one of my greatest desires is coming back. I love to sit in my chair. I love to drink my water out of my uh, faucet. I, I, like, I like all my stuff. And, and, and recently, we were just with our kids. So these are people who we love, and we can feel at home in their house, but it's not the same as our house. So... This place, that it's that safe place, that, that place that gives you comfort in all kinds of ways, Jesus was without. The one that, who claimed that he would follow Jesus anywhere, well, he just didn't know what he was saying. And, and I think this is, um, I think this happens a lot. I think we can have that happen 
to others, to, it, as we're making an invitation to follow Jesus, we can have this happen too. If we've watered down the gospel and we don't present an accurate account of what following Jesus through his sufferings and hardships has in store for the person. So Jesus has been sold for the last, like, I don't know, 200 years or so, and especially through revivalism and our American evangelicalism as a life enhancement product. Your life is hard. Come to Jesus, your life will get better. What happens when you come to Jesus and your life didn't get any better? This is no, this is no different than trying on something else that didn't work. So you can easily give Jesus up. But if we recognize that we're not just to receive him for the benefits of the gospel, which many want to do, but they don't really want to conform their lives to Jesus, then we don't recognize that he is there with us even in the midst of our suffering and making us peaceable or giving us peace, his peace, in the midst of turmoil. But this is going to come as we are surrendering our life to him. What has your faith cost you? Now, one of the reasons I think that the church is rather impotent and ineffective is because there has been a false gospel from lots of the church being preached. It's a different gospel. Out of Galatians, Paul rants and raves about there is no other gospel. Well, if there's a different gospel being preached, if Jesus is a life enhancement product, then that's a different gospel. So a different gospel doesn't transform. If your life is not changed, where do you get the motivation to give up the world? What is it that you have lost because of your relationship with Jesus? Have you lost friendships? Have you lost family members because of what Jesus means to you? Have you been rejected by people, friends, co-workers? Have you experienced friends or folks gathering for whatever kind of gathering, tailgating, what have you, but you're not on the list of invites because you're known as the Jesus freak? Have you experienced any hardship because of Jesus? Where is it that you've had to suffer for your faith? Kent Hughes, and this is a rather lengthy quote, but I think it's just beautiful. Kent Hughes says, No one who commits to following Christ and does so lives a life of ease. No one. If your Christianity has not brought discomfort to your life, something is wrong. A committed heart knows the discomfort of loving difficult people. The discomfort of giving until it hurts. The discomfort of putting oneself out for the ministry of Christ and his church. The discomfort of a life out of step with the modern culture. The discomfort of being disliked. The occasional sense of having nowhere to lay your head. But Christ's rewards far outvalue anything lost by following him. I just have, I want to back that quote up from a Dietrich Bonhoeffer quote out of Cost of Discipleship that should be on everybody's to-read list if you haven't read it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, the cross 
is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, which everyone must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. I think that's absolutely beautiful. Also, a Bonhoeffer quote says, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. We're in um, yeah, we're in we're in chapter nine. In in my Bible, I have to flip back a page. But if you'll go to verse twenty three, which you've if you've been around a while, you've heard me say this. Verse twenty three, I think, is really the heart of the gospel. Verse twenty three is is the if this is the heart of the if this is truly the heart of the gospel, it's like why have not I, why don't we hear about this? Why haven't I heard about that for the last 50 years? Verse 23 says, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And many of you may be, like me, familiar with this verse, but may, because of our familiarity, be miss its implication. So, let him deny himself and take up his, say, gas chamber, his guillotine, his rifle. This is the cross. It's not, it's not just something pretty we wear around our neck. This was the instrument by which people were put to death. What Jesus is saying is, you bring your instrument of death daily, die to yourself, and follow me. So to extrapolate on that, Kent Hughes said what he said, Bonhoeffer says what he says, but it's this removal of our attachment to the world that begins this walk. This is the kind of commitment that Jesus is talking about, that Jesus is demanding. Verse 59 says, to another he said, follow me, but he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, this one I find, I, like, this is harsh. Till we understand a little more. There's, there's as, as most of these things, there's a little more nuance than we first picture. There is a sense of urgency in Jesus' answer here. The man wanted a delayed response to following Jesus. It is not as if his, his dad was sick or on his deathbed or dead at this moment. The fifth commandment tells us to honor your father and mother. A Jew would certainly take care of their parents in their older age. This was part of their culture. If this man's father were dead or on his deathbed that kind of close to, to death, the man wouldn't have been out along the road. He would have been at home tending to his father. Well, the concept here is, I'm going to go back and live with my parents until which time my father dies. So, and then, so there's a, a thing of delayed response, a delayed of following, because I want it to be at a more convenient time for me. This is very inconvenient because this is what I had in mind. 
Jesus responds with, let the dead, the spiritually dead, bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. He called the man to the greater thing. Let someone else bury the dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom is what he's saying. If you've been made alive in Christ, go and tell of the kingdom. Don't ignore your greatest need, which is spiritual and invisible, with eternal implications. One of our, one of our challenges as Christians is simply choosing between what's good and what's best. It's not, it's not the most heinous sin or following Jesus that we now have to deal with. It's what's good and what's best. Well, that, that's, that silent thing, that invisible need, the spiritual need, is our most important need. And it has internal, eternal implications. And so we must tend to it before we worry about so many other things. Our lives should be filled with an urgency to apply the gospel in our lives and forsake the world so that we can live more fully for him. We should be anxious to spread the news of the kingdom. Our, our time is short. Our children grow up way too fast. We have a limited amount of time to build into them and send them off into the world. We have only a short amount of time left. Now, I, you don't have to be as old as me to count the time and see that it goes quickly. Time just is fleeting. And so no matter how long you have, it is still very short in light of eternity. We should feel an urgency to tend to the matters of our faith. Many talk of people walking away waking up because of the signs of the times say that the end is near. Now, I don't think that we can tell that. I don't think that everything is judged by what we're experiencing in the United States. I don't think we're the only people that God cares about. The church is still, still growing and going, just isn't here. We're, as we become more and more secularized, that doesn't mean the end is near. Not like the end times, the eschaton, that doesn't mean it's here. That means that we are leaving God and we're becoming more secularized. And the end for church and Judeo-Christian values has already, that's happened here. That's only going to continue. That doesn't mean the end is here. But what I, what I do believe is that uh, we don't know if we'll even make it home from here today. So... I don't, I, can't, I don't want to wake you up because the time, the end times is coming. I want, to, I want us to wake up because we don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know that we'll make it back here next week. So this could be the last day we are even alive. We don't know the times. And so we need to make use, best use, of the time that we have. For us to act like time is on our side is like a, it's just foolish and short-sighted. We need to have an urgency about spreading the good news, which really does address everyone's greatest need. Verse 61 says, Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I have seen many people say that God called me to this, that, or the other thing. 
only to find that in an incredibly short amount of time, they've moved on to something else. Now, I also have no doubt in my mind that God puts us sometimes in places and in, and in um, activities or ministries that are meant for a season. But sometimes in what I'm referencing, those seasons have not even been long enough to call a season. They've been extremely short because the, the winds have changed and now God's telling me to do something else. And so I've changed my mind. I'm going somewhere else to go do something else. I think it's extremely important that we discern God's call to whatever this thing is that he's calling us to. Because it is that undeniable call of God that keeps us from looking back and wishing for something different or something better or something else. The context that of, of this, of what Jesus is referring to, may have been the first Kings passage we just looked at, where Elijah comes to Elisha while he was plowing in the field and calls him to be his disciple. And there seems to be a hesitation. He wants to go first to, say, to kiss his father and mother and say goodbye. But he ultimately, he does follow and follows with some urgency. And I wish I had studied that piece more because, like, he's done with the plowing. Oh, you called me away from plowing, so I'm just going to burn up my, my oxen and my plow. Oh, that's some pretty serious doing away with, and that was, this is not a worldly thing. He's plowing so he can make food. He's, he's not out chasing women, which needs to be put away. He's plowing. And yet, we're going to eat the oxen, and we're going to burn the plow. There is a, there is a definite change in direction that he has. This is what Jesus is calling us to, a change in direction, a, a different focus, a determination. So this is, this is what... Um, I think Jesus wants. I think he wants our undivided attention. I think he wants our wholehearted efforts. I don't think he wants us to wait until the timing is right. I think he wants us to devote ourselves fully to him in the here and now. In 1 John 2, 15 through 17, John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So church, let us not love the world. The things that won't last May we be so enamored by the truth of this gospel, by his grace, that we so long to see his beauty, that we are so motivated for worship of him with every fiber of our being, that we are willing to endure real hardships and suffering as we recognize and experience the cost of following Jesus on this road. May God increase in us a sense of urgency to live more fully for him, to be putting off the, the old things, to be putting on the new, to be transformed by his truth, 
his love, his mercy, so that we can be effective witnesses of his loving kindness to the needy world all around us who are all longing for this same acceptance, for this same belonging, for this same loving relationship. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.